0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July 29th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, And now we wait. Now is the time between processing what we saw, finding meaning in it, responding to it, hoping that millions of others who share our nationality, our language, we're told our basic values, find a semblance of sense in it, the way that we did. We don't need all of the other people with our shared traits to respond to it like we do. We're fine if 40 to 45% of our countrymen saw those two conventions and came to exact opposite conclusions. We expect that. That does not shake our faith. We price in a bit of xenophobia, a dash of bigotry, a dollop of adherence to party brand above all else. We acknowledge there's a certain percentage that just can't countenance Hillary no matter what. And of all those people who watched two weeks of conventions and came away with exact opposite conclusions that we did, and if that number amounts to many, many millions, but not a majority, we're fine with that. But right now, we don't know. We don't know. We're in that liminal moment where NASA scientists, the rocket has just begun liftoff. There is the cloud of exhaust and flame underneath it, but we've all seen the tape where it plunges back to earth, where Price is Right contestants, that spinner is edging towards the $1, but we don't know if it'll stop. We don't know if it'll slow down. We're expectant parents in the delivery room. Meaning? Meaning? There's no use for trying to take meaning in what we saw, meaning in how we think. The meaning is how some other people, who we might only barely understand how they think, Meaning is Rasmussen, meaning is Gallup and Gravis and Survey Monkey. Don't toy with me, Survey Monkey. That's what defines our reality. We wait. So I'll talk to you Monday when we know if we have a country that we understand or if we don't. That's all that's at stake. But first, here right now on The Gist, let's talk about our country a hundred years ago. It's one of the great forgotten acts of terrorism on U.S. soil. It propelled us into world-changing events, and it went unacknowledged and buried for years. Chad Millman is here with the story of Black Tom Island. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites, He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFaul, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could've taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So we're approaching a major anniversary of a terrorist event in the United States. What? You're saying, oh, yeah, I guess it is just about the 15th anniversary of September 11th. Nope, not talking about that. What, a month since the Orlando shooting? Nope. Let's talk about a centennial. You ever hear of the explosion on Black Tom Island in New York Harbor? Well, if you haven't, Chad Millman has written the history of this event that really should be remembered and was quite important and at the very least is a great yarn. It is, in fact, a yarn. The name of Chad's book is The Detonators, The Secret Plot to Destroy America and an Epic Hunt for Justice. Hey, Chad. How are you doing? So 1916, World War I is raging, but not with the United States involvement. How does that come into play with this cache of munitions on an island in New York Harbor?
1: Well, I think that's exactly why it comes into play because at the time, Woodrow Wilson's the president and he has said the U.S. is going to be neutral. We are not going to join World War I. Meanwhile, American companies continue to build all the munitions they can and they are selling them to the highest bidders. Mm -hmm. This happens to be the British and the French. The British and the French have a blockade, a naval blockade, so they control the seas. They are the only ones who can get any kind of resources through the blockade. They are the only ones with any money. Germany was so strapped for cash, the Kaiser had declared they couldn't do target practice because they didn't have enough bullets. So the British and the French are buying up all the bullets, all the dynamite, all the shells, and the Germans who are in the United States. They have a huge spy network in the United States. They see this happening, and they're like, well, we can't buy up any of these munitions so we're just going to have to blow up the biggest munitions depot in the country to stop it from going and killing our soldiers. So at
0: this point, the United States had diplomatic relations with Germany. It wasn't even clear, which it was pretty clear that we wouldn't. the United States wouldn't join on the side of the Germans. But it wasn't as cut and dried as A, World War II, and B, history might fool us into believing. So when you talk about the spy networks, you know, these included actual – German officers who swore fealty to the, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm.
1: Yeah, so there were these massive networks. And what's interesting about this is President Wilson, who sort of had joked that if foreign policy becomes something that is paramount in my administration, something's gone horribly wrong yeah. because because he didn't believe that when they were neutral – that any country would sort of establish spy networks within another country. And he was horribly wrong yeah. about this. So yeah, all the way up to sort of the highest levels of German diplomacy, they were fully aware that they were operating with phony passport operations. They were planting stories in newspapers. They were paying reporters for excellent publicity and for these, these stories that, that tried to raise the flag on sort of what Germany was trying to do during World War I. And all of this was going on under the nose of the American government. So where is Black Tom Island exactly? Black Tom or was. Black Tom <laughs> was. It, it disintegrated in the explosion. Black Tom Island is just on the other side of the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. So if you're at the tip of Manhattan, you're staring at the Statue of Liberty. Liberty at her back was Black Tom Island. And— You described this network of spies that was pretty much allowed
0: to take place. But what about the security around the munitions themselves? Uh, Capitalistic theory would tell you that the people who controlled these bombs and dynamite and guns would at least guard it competently.
1: It was incredibly incompetent. Actually, it was uh, there were so many rules like they were supposed to follow the train cars that came in that held all the munitions that were coming in from all over the country. They were supposed to be unloaded every single night so that nobody could sneak onto the yard and sort of detonate a massive explosion. They were supposed to be put in sort of safe zones or they were supposed to be put in the hulls of the ships that were then heading out to sea. But nobody ever did that. They had you know very few guards, and it turns out these guards happened to have been bought and paid for by German spies who were, you know, seeing them walking around and said, hey, let me walk on. I'll give you a few bucks. And like over time, they became known to these people.
0: So take me to the July 1916 date and uh, what actually lit the spark, which Uh, sometimes in history is an analogy. But in this case,
1: this actually happened. It's it's very (laughs) literal. So what had happened was there was a guy named Michael Christoph who um, had been hired as sort of a... Patsy, for lack of a better term, by one of the leaders of the German spy network. And he had him working at a factory across from Black Tom Island. So he was very familiar... On the Jersey th- side? On the Jersey side. So he was very familiar to the guards who roamed sort of the, the the yard, the railroad yard where Black Tom was. The night of the attack, it was July 29th at about 11.30 in the evening. He walked over to Black Tom and walked right down to the yard and he was packed with some dynamite and he had these uh, these little glass tubes that German chemists had created that sort of had these natural timing devices. So they put these nickel sized pieces of metal in the middle of the tube. And on either side of the tube were these chemicals. And the chemicals would eat away at the tube, and then they'd combust when they met. And sort of the thickness of the tube indicated how long before that was the timing mechanism.
0: Now, when you say the German chemists had created them, they gave the Americans the technology. and we and we and they physically made them in America. then didn't ship them from Germany,
1: oh, no, this they, some of them they made on sort of, Docked submarines, sort of in the in international waters, wow. and then they rode them in. But this particular cache had actually been brought over by an American, a German-American who was working as a spy for Germany and he could sort of go free and clear because he was a prominent businessman in the Baltimore area so he was far away from New York that he wasn't suspect. He had gone to Germany he had gone to Berlin and had sort of been said I will help you and they gave him this cash and he brought it back and then one of his guys gave it to this patsy named Michael Christoph so Christoph went on to Black Tom and had his bag full of explosives and put some dynamite in one railroad car and put these little glass cigar tubes into another railroad car. And at 12 on July 30th, very early in the morning, around 1230, 1245, these two ship captains who happened to be docked in Black Tom Island were talking. And then all of a sudden, one of them noticed this massive fire coming out of one of the railroad cars nearby. They realized it was loaded with munitions. They ran for cover. And over the next two hours was massive chaos and explosions unlike anyone had ever seen to the point where shrapnel was tearing into the Statue of Liberty. And that's why years later, Lee Iacocca had to create a campaign to repair the Statue of Liberty because of the shrapnel from Black Tom Island. And all the way into Manhattan, as far away as 42nd Street, the windows in the New York Public Library were being blown out. So it was... The devastation was massive. sounds like it worked. It sounds
0: like they had a good theory that once you start exploding some munitions that this will be a chain reaction. But it sounds like it worked better than or at least as good as they could have hoped in their wildest imagination.
1: Who can say what they were expecting, right? Yeah. But what they wanted was to make some noise. And they really wanted to destroy all the munitions they could. and. They wanted people to be clear that like something bad was happening and they want, they felt Americans and American businesses were hypocrites. And whether this was sort of deluded thinking or not, they believed if they could blow up Black Tom Island the press around it would make people believe that Americans were hypocrites too because look at all these munitions and they say that they're neutral. Mm. Were they hoping
0: that it would show German might, that it might put fear in Americans to switch sides?
1: Actually, no, because they, they were fearful of the idea that Germany could be blamed. Mm-hmm. The case itself was investigated for 20 years after it happened. And for years, Germany's paramount, sort of feeling about the explosion was trying to not have to be blamed for it because they knew sort of the damages it would incur in German-US relations after the war and yeah. sort of the money they'd have to pay back. But So, so even
0: Weimar Germany was... Dead set on denying oh, yeah. culpability. Absolutely. Yeah, which yeah. was supposedly Western, well, at least under the heel of the West. So so much of your book talks about the quest to crack the case. And I think that you found in those characters some interesting uh, – Really detectives.
1: Yeah, they, that's exactly what they were. And they they were lawyers and they were assigned to this case or picked up this case because they kind of thought there'd be a big payday in mm-hmm. it, right? And it turns out that for years they were investigating and it became sort of this cause that galvanized them. The The most interesting guy in the investigation was this guy, John McCloy, who at the time was just a corporate lawyer in New York and was assigned to the case and because of his experience with the case and investigating Germans, he came to the attention of Henry Stimson, who was the secretary of war under FDR. And after the case had ended and the U S had finally proven that the Germany had done it and they had sort of settled the case. Stimson hired McCloy to be his assistant secretary of war because he had such experience sort of dealing with what he perceived to be the devious German mind. And because of that, uh, you
0: know, you hate to profile a whole country, but,
1: you know, in 1920s, 1930s, not maybe the worst profiling. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, like you're, you're <laughs> hesitant to say it, but at the time. Oh, what, what decade? Yeah. What country? Exactly. Right, go ahead. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, FDR, who had been the assistant secretary of the Navy in World War One, and had seen very clearly sort of new the experience of Black Tom Island and sort of German saboteurs and then felt he was seeing the next iteration of that with Pearl Harbor, they were deciding to intern the Japanese. And they're sitting in the Oval Office and FDR looks at McCloy and puts him in charge of interning the Japanese. And he looks at him and says, we don't want another Black Tom Island. Yeah. McCloy ended up going on to become like the first high commissioner of Germany and the chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank and the Council on Foreign Relations and, you know, was an advisor to presidents from FDR through the first George Bush.
0: Yeah, But the difference aside from the idea of collective punishment is, well, there are so many differences between the situation with Japanese Americans and German Americans, but there wasn't huge rings of sympathizers in the Japanese community to Tojo's Japan, for instance. No. Yeah. But then again, And you could also say that it was clear that Japan was an enemy of the United States uh, at the time of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And like we talked about, it was less clear with the Germans. You
1: know what's interesting about that is when Black Tom happened and when World War I began, you know, this was a time of peak immigration in the United States, right? Late 1800s, early 1900s. Everyone is coming through Ellis Island. German-Americans – were one of the most prominent immigrant groups. John Jacob
0: Astor, and we're both sports guys, Lou Gehrig, and they all lived in the Yorkville section of New York. Exactly. And the German immigrants were, you know, the most – many people changed their names, and we don't even know necessarily just by surname who was a German immigrant. But it's still the largest immigrant group in the United States. And what's
1: interesting about that is at the time, before World War I, there were surveys in in, uh, newspapers and stuff – German Americans were the most respected of the immigrant groups because they had done the most to assimilate yeah and then after World War one began you saw all of that go away you know the uh, they started calling hamburgers liberty uh, liberty sandwiches right and they were calling sauerkraut Liberty cabbage it sounds familiar doesn't yeah, it and yeah. they had banned the teaching of German in California schools and they had Banned German opera from the Met, and there was a real fear that there was going to be an insurrection of German Americans within the United States if we ended up joining the war. There were stories about that in the newspaper all the time. Mm. Teddy Roosevelt would barnstorm and say, These hyphenated Americans are going to terrorize us. So it's fascinating, sort of how how quickly it flipped. Was there any loss of life on Black Tom Island? Quite a bit. Six known losses of life, including you know firemen and policemen who ran in, a baby in Jersey City that was thrown from its from its crib. Yeah, what they what they, they, could, they this was. I mean, Jersey City is what fifteen miles away from there. Jersey City, not even. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. even fifteen miles. But, but, but a baby um, thrown, but, from, its but crib. Baby thrown yeah. from its crib, right? But what they couldn't calculate was there were massive amounts of immigrants living in boats in the harbor there. Those literally turned to dust, like they just disappeared. So no one's able to really say for sure, because there are so many people who weren't documented as citizens of the United States.
0: We didn't have the word terrorism. Did we have the idea of terrorism back then? Was this seen as something uh, of a separate category than an act of war? You know how we conceptualize terrorism now.
1: Well, you know, one of those things that's interesting about this event, and you sort of... Mentioned it in the beginning that a lot of people don't know about it, right? There had been two years leading up to this of Woodrow Wilson and his aides understanding that there were these massive spy networks in the United States. And there had been incidents of other sort of acts of sabotage at munitions depots. And as soon as it happened, Wilson was so interested in maintaining our neutrality. Mm -hmm. He was campaigning at the time as the president who had kept us out of war. The first thing he says the next day, this was nothing but a regrettable incident at a railroad. And even the Bureau of Investigations immediately in the paper the next day said there will be no investigation. This was nothing but an accident. So... Very quickly, they were trying to walk away from any idea that this was a massive act of sabotage, which is what they would have called it back then instead of terrorism.
0: Well, maybe it wasn't terrorism. I mean, it was a military target. There was no intention. I mean, if there were casualties along the way, that's fine. But it wasn't an intention to kill civilians. So maybe technically it wasn't. But the other thing is it didn't terrorize us because the authorities— downplayed it to the point of ignoring it. And that's why it took 20 years later for these uh, investigators to figure out what actually happened.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the U.S. government definitely tried to sort of say... Nothing to see here. Let's walk away. You know, that kind of thing.
0: Okay, but what were the consequences of that? I mean, you could argue that post-September 11th, the world changed and we changed everything. Perhaps we overreacted. I mean, obviously, there's still networks of Al-Qaeda and people who were intent on killing us. And with Germany and World War I, that wasn't their intention. But maybe something could be said for, sure, it was a huge underreaction, but at least it wasn't an overreaction.
1: Well, I guess you could argue that, that anything since then is an overreaction, but I don't think that— And underreaction ends up being the right solution for
0: something like that. That's true.
1: When you go there
0: now, is there even a plaque? Oh, yeah. What's the there there?
1: So right now it's uh, Liberty State Park. It's Uh sort of at the... I guess, the southern edge of Liberty State Park on the Jersey side of New York Harbor. It's a beautiful area. Been to the Science Museum with my kids. The Science Museum is there. It's great. And it's sort of, there's a lovely walking path. You can walk all along sort of the river at that edge of it into the harbor. And there is a plaque. It says, like, it's very small. I read about it in the intro in the book. It's a very small plaque that says this was the site of the first terrorist attack in the United States. Even that has sort of always struck me in the way it sort of, it's like a small plaque, like on a metal stanchion, like covered in plastic. It's kind of fading a little bit. It's not like a metal engraved plaque or anything. But yeah, it's there.
0: The Detonators, The Secret Plot to Destroy America, and an Epic Hunt for Justice. Chad Milman is the author of that book. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Mike. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by my producer, My hero, my Triceratops instructor, Mary Wilson. Have you ever seen the executive producer of Sleep Podcast, Mr. Trump? If not, I can lend you mine. He's Steve Liktai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network, where his main job is developing shows, assembling talent, and canceling out the vote of your weird cousin. The gist if you believe in flags and bears and off key singing and not buying into that which is bullshit, join us. Umperu, Deperu, peru and thanks for listening.